A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 70, we're 70, 70 years old, of Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, and I mean simply everything, everything in the whole world has its own history, like dogs, chairs, or even James Love. Oh, absolutely. Or smoke, the yoke, the poke, um, the beat, <laughs> the street and the treat. I'll leave you to ponder the history of the beat and we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways who knew for example sam who knew that the history of chairs is all about royalty childbirth salt water and executions or that the history of hats is about churchill nelson and abraham lincoln Ooh, they've, that all, they've all got distinctive hats it's also about beavers witches. <laughs> nice. I, I went for a walk with Geronimo this morning and I saw the most extraordinary chair mm. in um, in a field, which I will not tell you about now because I'm going to tell you about it in our podcast on chairs. Oh, good. Which is not this one. I look forward to it. Um, because we take our turns, don't we, with uh, what we're talking do. about. And um, this week we're going to be talking about recipes. But anyway, the man sitting opposite me, he's the Thomas Edison of historical sparks. It's Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. And the man sitting opposite me, and I've already mentioned your name, the man sitting opposite me is the king of content. It's the famous historical adventurer, the truly wonderful Dr. Sam Willis. Thank you very much. And hello, everyone. So this week, this was inspired slightly by a podcast we did on lists. Yes. Um, which came after Christmas because we realised that everyone was doing extraordinary shopping lists for Christmas and lists of presents. And then there were going to be lists for New Year's resolutions and all sorts of things. So we put our heads together and thought that list was very interesting, but a, there's a particular type of list which we wanted to do. And that is the recipe. And recipes are something very, very dear to my heart. Why is that? In lots of ways. Uh, two ways. Yes. Two main ways. Um, one, um, I'm a total foodie. Okay. Uh, uh, I didn't know that. Hu- you did know that. Um, a huge part of my life is mm-hmm. collecting recipes and cookbooks. I have a, I mean, you know, not an extraordinary amount of cookbooks compared to real collectors, but I've got several hundred cookbooks. And I and I cut out, on a, or I used to cut out when I had time, on a weekly basis, recipes, and then would put them in folders and organise them 
I'm starting to think, James, that if allowed loose, you would collect everything. Yes. <laughs> but also, um, research. I work on the early modern period uh, and have worked on women and gender. And the recipe book or the receipt book is a very important uh, historical resource, which I'll talk about later for on. For the history of women. For the, for the history of women, for the history of medicine, it for, the history, for the history of the history household. of men as well. There must be yep. male yep. chefs in so, the past. But also the receipt book, it's not just about food recipes. It's also about medical recipes uh-huh. and all sorts of all sorts of things. Every, a lot of production would have happened within the household. So a lot of medical production would have happened within the household. A lot of cooking preparation yeah. would have happened in the household. So people are keeping notes on all of this. And there are some amazing manuscript and printed volumes that survive. It's essentially the, the early history of manufacture as well, isn't it? Yes. There's people yes. making stuff yes. out of very yes. basic ingredients. And I think it's something that... It really defines us as human. Yeah, actually, we can we can put stuff together in a crazy mix and make something truly yep. magical and very yep. different. But we can also write it down. We can record it. We for yep. posterity, we could pass it on. We can improve exactly, it. exactly, exactly. Yeah. And it's also about it's also about scientific experimentation ah. and discovery. Yeah. Um, all of those sort of things, you know, it just it just explodes. Yeah, I'm going to be talking about things we haven't got recipes for. <laughs> I'm going to be talking <laughs> which about which is a fascinating his part of the I history. Brought of the along, recipe. I brought along my one of my favourite cookbooks. Wow, uh, Larousse. Okay, I know nothing um, about this. Larousse. Is the sort of it, this is the sort I'm of not a foodie. Sta- I'm the opposite. This is, of this a is the standard uh, French cookbook. Okay, this is like the Bible. Of, I mean, if you think about the sort of the history of the cookbook, my God, it's called it's called the world's greatest yes. cookery <laughs> encyclopedia. The, the, That's a big cool. Larousse gastronomique. Oh. I mean, the other 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 countries have their own sort of um, what what you probably call definitive national cookbooks. So, if you think about Italy, mm-hmm. Italy silver spoon is one of the sort of the the go to cookbooks. I think there's there's an equivalent in Spain, America. Uh, the U.S. gourmet cookbook is one of the sort of standards. I was trying to think what the sort of definitive cookbook would be in the U.K. I mean, because somebody like um, Delia Smith is kind of you know okay, is a little yeah. too sort of lowbrow, yeah. You know, because this is sort of this is sort of high haute cuisine. This idea of national cookbooks though is really yeah. interesting. So you yeah. said to be an American cookbook. Yeah. I and mean, what does that you wouldn't, mean? You wouldn't, I, I wouldn't know where to Betty be. Crocker or But then as in as in super traditional super white, traditional What do you mean? So, I mean, so what it would be not, not it would be a Mexican, be, not Italian, not Spanish. No, but it would be a cookbook that would encompass all of the national dishes of a country and all the regional variations um, yeah. That probably would, you know, that probably would be increasingly global, yeah. reflecting all the sort of influences that are that are coming in. But if you think about the history of the cookbook, um, you know, I think some of the earliest cookbooks that survive. I mean, are, of course, these are these are manuscript and and you know, in various forms, come from Babylonia in 1600 BC. We've got Egyptian, ancient Greek, ancient Roman, Arabic, medieval texts. Uh, One of the earliest English cookbooks is a book called The Form of Curry, 1390, uh, commissioned by Richard II. It's not about curry. Curry here basically means cooking. Uh, You then think about the, we get a lot of manuscript cookbooks in the 15th century. The 16th and 17th century, you've got lots of the sort of aristocratic households, gentry households, all vying with each other to sort of produce the 
the sort of most luxurious meals and honing those recipes. It's a status thing as well, isn't it? So, so the, the, the rich people aren't doing the cooking themselves. No, they have people cooking, but they have for people them. who they commission to do the, you know, to produce these these books for them. And it must be linked literacy. So you may yep. be a very Absolutely. very good cook. Yep. But unable to write, and unable it's, to and it's, how, it. it's how you pass that. It's how you pass that kind of tradition on. If you think about it, what we're talking about is often an oral tradition that's passed on from, say, mother to daughter, yeah. and is often on along a sort of female line. You know, in the professional world of of cooking, I imagine you know it's much more of a sort of male thing. By the nineteenth, to follow this trajectory on though, by the nineteenth century. In certainly in in England, you've got things like um, Mrs. Beaton, you know, Mrs. Acton, and those sort of compendious sort of yeah. books that are about household economy, you know. And then you could follow that through into people like Delia Smith and Jamie Oliver, and have a look at the sort of the rise of the celebrity chef. and And it's interesting to see what people do with recipes nowadays. I have a theory about celebrity Go. chefs. I think celebrity chefs are um, secret historians. Because a lot of if you're a celebrity chef and you're making uh, you're making new cookbooks, you're making new TV shows about whatever you're doing, you have to what we'd call it historiography as a historian. You have to be extremely aware in a very detailed and comprehensive manner of everything that's gone before, so you can place your new proposal, your new way of doing things, your new recipe, yeah, um, which uh, in 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 a new kind of in a new context, in a new context, which will allow the publishers of your history books to then sell them and say this is a new idea. So, so I think all of these um, celebrity chefs, hello celebrity chefs out there, if you are a celebrity chef listening to this, please get in touch. But I I suspect that they they um, they have this kind of subconscious awareness of themselves in a very long timeline, yeah, which which is um, it's quite rare, I think. I mean, you have to be a bit of a historian to be able to be a celebrity chef. And I'm not sure if there are any other... Um, I'm now talking off the top of my head, but there are any other professions where that is just so much the case. Mm. What do you think? I'll give me 24 hours to think about okay. it. Yeah. But I think the thing with a lot of chefs, or, or the best sort of the best cookery writers, is that they do look back at a sort of trajectory of, of tradition of, of cooking. Yeah. Um, there was one summer, oh, this must have been about a decade ago, when... Uh, my wife and I, pre-kids, were touring the Languedoc mm-hmm. and kind of and staying in all sorts of interesting places and eating all sorts of amazing food. And I came across this wonderful restaurant by a canal and had the most amazing cassoulet. Which, if, you, if you've never had a cassoulet, I like a cassoulet. A cassoulet. But what this, I became obsessed with cassoulet recipes. And did you know that there are so many different varieties of cassoulet just recipe. A bit of bacon and some beans. No, 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 no. <laughs> it, it, it is. And I, I, this, is where, this is why I brought my LaRousse along. Ah. So I decided that I was going to trace the stemmer of, uh, of the cassoulet. So the stemmer of a... Of a stemmer, stemmatics comes from uh, literary criticism, a particularly pedantic form of literary criticism that wants to trace different variants of, say, a poem. So you trace oh, okay, it back right, to right. its original yep. poem and then you mm. follow it sort of I'd be the way it comes out. I like that. So it's brilliant. Um, but what I wanted to do was do that with a with a recipe. Uh-huh. Um, and so the place that I go to for all wisdom about French cuisine is, of course, my LaRousse. Um, and apparently there is, a, there is a huge debate, a warfare among French cooks about the um, about the different kinds of cassoulet recipes. Now, this is a, a dish, and I quote, originally from the Languedoc, which consists of haricot, or navy beans, cooked in a stew pot with pork rinds and seasonings, a garnish of meats which varies from region to region, and gratin topping are added in the final stages. 
um, the haricot beans, blah, 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 blah. Um, creaminess, blah, 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 blah. Cassoulet is divided into three types according to the meats used. Prosper Montenegro called them the Trinity, the father being the Cassoulet from Castelnaudry, the son, the Cassoulet from Carcassonne, and the Holy Ghost, that from Toulouse. The first, which is undoubtedly the oldest, contains pork. Loin, ham, leg, sausages, and fresh rinds, which perhaps a piece of preserved with perhaps a piece of preserved goose. In Carcassonne, leg of mutton, and during the shooting season, partridge are used. The same ingredients are used in Toulouse as in Castelnaudry, but in smaller quantities. The difference being made up with fresh lard, Toulouse sausage, mutton, and duck or goose. And there are various other variations. Amazing on that theme. So yeah. I became obsessed with that one summer. But it, it does kind of remind us, isn't it, that recipes can vary geographically as well as chronologically yeah 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 Yeah. absolutely i like recipes i i don't like cooking really do you not no um it's not my it's not a thing i enjoy who cooks in the house then me you yes oh (laughs) i i (laughs) i dislike cooking a little bit less than my wife (laughs) anyway that's not to say we don't have recipe books we have recipes there's a lot of rustling going on here because i've got a wonderful collection of um just kind of loose leaf um Things. So, uh, recipes as a historical source, okay? Uh, that's what I want to talk about. Go. So, we, here we have a very sort of basic one. This is uh, written by, I don't know, possibly my son. Best brownies. So, we've got brownie recipes. We've got um, banana bread recipes that's written by my daughter. Um, so, we've got a lot of things, and um, it's it's kind of encapsulating them at a, at, a, it's, at a sort of particular time in their lives, which I think is really interesting. Chocolate shortbread. Now, here we go. This has been rewritten by my daughter because um, this recipe, you see, this this sings of childhood to me. Um, we used to have holidays in Cornwall, family holidays in Cornwall, and after we'd been surfing on the beach, we'd get something called chocolate shortbread, which is, it's kind of like, it's not quite a brownie, and it's made out of chocolate digestives and golden syrup and butter and sugar. It's completely... Is it like millionaire's shortbread? Yes, but caramel it's not... No, there's no, no caramel, and it's not quite as intense, so right. you can eat quite a lot of this okay. stuff. Okay, oh, it's, good. So it's more, like, it's more like a digestive than a millionaire shortbread, because if you have right. one piece of millionaire shortbread, you, you basically <laughs> nearly have a heart attack. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, no, but this is much more kind of consumable. Um, anyway, so it got tr- given from my mum down to me. I wrote it in my terrible kind of scrappy doctor's handwriting. And uh, my daughter, uh, who is the, the cook in the house, um, she got cross with it and she's rewritten it. So this was probably her writing when she was about five or six. Um, and the ingredients are dark chocolate digestives, um, some kind of margarine, drinking chocolate powder, caster sugar and golden syrup. So I love that because that reminds me of my childhood and I'm sure that in the future it will remind my daughter of, yeah. of her childhood, particularly of being on the beach. So, Where do you keep them? Um, we're jammed in the corner of the kitchen. OK. Um, but now, th- this, this idea of, of having recipes passed down through the family brings me to this. Now, this is a recipe, but it's caught up with all sorts of things. Um... And it survives in my recipe folder. But if you're a historian, there's a lot more going on here, which is why I think it's particularly interesting. Um, So here we go. Uh, This is dated 2006, March. Hmm. Hello, darling. Hmm. It's a glorious sunny day here, but very cold. I've just been round the block with Pickle, uh, dog, and I'm tidying up the last of my admin before painting this afternoon. Daddy's still not well. He went to the office for a couple of hours yesterday and may go in this afternoon but at present is upstairs, but with the games on the TV, I think that's the Olympics, to keep him company. 
bronchitis is a serious illness and will take its time to go away completely. It does him no harm to have this time off either. He carries the whole show all the time. Here is the recipe for the blackcurrant mousse. You can use either frozen or bottled blackcurrants or even your own fresh in the summer. It serves six. 450 grams of blackcurrants, 175 grams of caster sugar, three eggs separated, 15 grams of powdered gelatin, three tablespoons of water, the juice of half a lemon, 150 ml of whipping cream whipped. And then it goes on and explains how you do it. So there you are. That's just a... a, a and it go, it, it's, it's, it's part of actually a much longer of a much longer letter. Mm. And um, I love this idea of recipes being buried mm. in other correspondence that as a historian you might stumble oh, it. So yeah. you might be reading a letter yeah. and then you stumble across a recipe or you do it the other way around in that respect. So you're yeah. looking for a recipe but you stumble across a window into the past. I mean, it's about it's about transmission as well. It's about mechanisms of transmission. How how are recipes passed on? I mean, that's in, a, in an email. Yeah. You know, you might pass a recipe on by hand. You might talk, you know, tell somebody about it. They then write it down. Correspondence is a really common way um, that recipes survive. I mean, I've I've worked on correspondence for years, and it, they crop up all the time. Mm. Um, but I think one of the things I wanted to just talk about very briefly was the survival of historical recipes. Yeah, they survive in an extraordinary number. If you're interested in this in any way. One of the really good starting places is the Wellcome Trust Library. Okay. Go online and um, so Wellcome Library Collections, digital collections, recipe books, and they have digitised all their holdings. Food recipes. Food and the Wellcome is, is all about medicine. Uh, okay. So, so they've got medical and culinary recipes <laughs> throughout the ages from the 16th to 19th century. These are domestic manuscripts. And the library holds, they say, unrivaled collections mm. of these. And you can just click on this and read through. They've got notes. that It, it enables you to um, look at food history, domestic medicine, scientific experimentation, women as medical practitioners, herbal practice. You look at um, manuscript and print culture, local and national economic frameworks, recipes as autobiographies. I did a, I did a really, really simple search on Devon Heritage mm-hmm. Centre and I got up 54 hits. I just put into their online, this is our local record office in Exeter, I just put in the word recipes, 54 hits, including recipes early 20th century, loose papers found with recipe, contains booklet on cans, f- canned foods and wartime catering and a booklet on milk recipes so you can get into you know how people... You know, cooked during the Second World War at a time of rationing. Milk recipes. And yeah, so if you don't have if you don't have milk, so the way in which you'd cook with powdered milk. Ah, I see. Wow. Um, then an 18th century recipe for the stone. So if somebody's got gallstone, how you get rid of that. Wow. There's a folder of 19th century household recipes. Um, there is uh, notes on estate and household matters with recipes from the Fortescue family. There's recipes concerned with plague, rickets, gout, worms. There's a Barnstable cookery book from 1914, a book of tried and trusted recipes. There's a 1726 book of directions for Captain Wheatley's Wheatley's Lady Hmm. being manuscript recipes. I mean, you know, and if you go into any record office or research library in the country and you look through family and household collections, yeah. 
you will come up with masses and masses of stuff. I've just um, typed in recipe yep. to the catalogue of the National Archives. Oh, <laughs> I bet you've got several thousand hits. Wow, there's a whole lifetime of stuff here. Um, and in all sorts of wonderful private collections, Lancashire Archives, the Norfolk Record Office, the Ironbridge Gorge Museum, Library and Archives. Oh, bet that's a good one. They'd make really good pies, the Derby family. Miscellaneous items on food. Derbyshire Record Office, Cornwall Record Office, the Cumbria Archive Centre. Hello, Cumbria Archive Centre. The Museum of English Rural Life, the Centre for Buckinghamshire Studies. They are all out. Somerset Heritage Centre, the Staffordshire, the Stoke-on-Trent Archive Service. My goodness me. See, it's amazing how common these... Yes. And it's extraordinary, so you'd assume they'd all be about food, but they're not. Here you are in the Lincolnshire Archives... In J.E. Sandars's papers, 1890 to 91, is a recipe for treating worms in horses. Yep. Um, we've got uh, more food things, medical and culinary in their business as carpenters. Ah, oh, wonderful stuff. The Leeds University Library. I want to go and look at all of these. I mean, and, and also I think the, the idea that is, I think is important to make is that it's not all about cooking. No. And it is about all, all manner of things. I've got just a few early modern recipes, so 17th, 16th, 17th century uh, recipes here. The first is from an English recipe book, uh, which gives a sweet-smelling recipe for a perfume to burn. Take two ounces of the powder of juniper, benjamin and storax each, one ounce, six drops of oil of cloves, ten grains of musk, beat all these to a paste with a little gum dragon steeped in rose or orange flower water and roll them up like big peas and flat them and dry them in a dish in the oven or sun and keep them for they must be put in on a coal of shovels and they will give a pleasing smell. Mm. The other one, and this is one of my favourites, have you ever heard of stink bait? Yes, we talked about We talked before. about stink bait before. What is it? Is it something fishing? Is something that is, it's, it's a stinky... Uh, substance that you that you create and you throw it out into the water yeah. as you're fishing and it attracts oh, yes. all the fish. And there's a recipe in a book uh, called Ink, Stinkbait and Revenge mm. and Queen Elizabeth by a couple of friends of mine, Steve May and Arthur Marotti. Uh, it's a, a Yorkshire Elizabethan Yorkshire yeoman's household book and it's got several recipes in this. Um, take worms and lay them in a dish all night and of the morrow... When they have purged all the earth clean, take the yolk of an egg, wheat flour, sweet, and strain them together and let them lie till you go to fish. Now, presumably, uh, rotten worms stewed with off egg and wheat flour were irresistible to Elizabethan fish. <laughs> I think that's wonderful. I like the idea of um, comedy recipes. Oh. Um, they, they come in all sorts of forms. There's there's the, the classic sort of spoonful of love and a pinch of patience. Yes. You know, the, you, you get these um, often in, in kitchens of cottages, is how I imagine it, you know, hmm. how to how to survive a marriage. It's that kind of thing. <laughs> anyway, um, my my favourite one, of course, is uh, comes from the maritime and naval historical world. Before I go on about this, you have to understand what a ola podrida is. Do you know what it is? No. Okay, so it's like, it's like a Spanish version of a cassoulet, oh. but a, a bit more full on, all right? Um, it literally means rotten bowl. Ooh. Um, and it's a fairly serious meal, all right? <laughs> Check out this. And is this made up or is this genuine? Genuinely true. This, Genuinely is, a, this true. is a traditional Spanish right. stew, okay? Right. Very, very calorific. Right. Right. You have a bowl it's of like this. like cheese with maggots You in don't it. need to eat for the rest of right. the week. You start off with a mild 300 grams of haricot beans, then 500 grams of 
other beans, one pig's ear, one trotter, half a kilo of marinated pork ribs, three blood sausages, three chorizos, full chorizos, half a kilo of ox meat, one hen, one duck, one quail, 250 grams of lamb on piece of bacon, 100 grams of chicken liver and gizzards, and then a load of veg, onion, leeks, green pepper, cabbage, carrots, celery, garlic bulbs, bay leaf, flour, olive oil and salt. That is called the Ola Podrida. And um, yeah, that's pretty... It's making me feel so hungry. <laughs> it's a fairly serious meal, isn't it? Yes, so, um, very. Here we are. This is, this is why it was... Um, have you heard of the Battle of Cape St. Vincent? Yes. Right, 1797. Top of my head. I think I might have got that wrong. No, February 1797. Um, I'll trust you on that one. Royal Navy uh, fighting the Spanish. So the Spanish have just joined in with the French Revolutionary War. And they're coming back from... Um, Ooh, Central America with a cargo of mercury. Again, this is I'm fairly I'm sort of grasping at straws here. It's been some time since I wrote the definitive book on it, and I've forgotten <laughs> everything. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Uh, <laughs> but people people can read your book right, yeah, and can. get the definitive. If you want to actually know about this from someone who really knows what they're talking about, um, get my book, In the Hour of Victory. Very good book. Okay. Um, so, uh, Nelson, it's, it's basically when Nelson gets onto the, the sort of the, the international stage as, as a particularly courageous man, he captures two massive Spanish warships. And he described his actions in the battle because he knew that the um, admiral of the British fleet, John Jarvis, was always rather sort of reticent in his willingness to be colourful in his descriptions. His, his uh, Jarvis's letters back to the Admiralty are mind-blowingly dull. So after the battle, Nelson wrote to his wife, Fanny Nelson, and um, he wrote this comedy recipe, which he described as Nelson's art of cooking Spaniards. <laughs> you take a first-rate and an 80-gun ship, and after well-battering and basting them for an hour, keep moving in your force balls, and be sure to let these be well-seasoned. Your fire must never slacken for a moment, but must be kept up as brisk as possible during the whole time. So soon as you perceive your Spaniards to be well-stewed and blended together, you must throw your own ship on board the two-decker, back your spritzel yard to her mizzen mast, then skip to her quarter gallery window, sword in hand, and let the rest of your boarders follow as they can. The moment that you appear on the 80-gun ship quarterdeck, the Spaniards will all throw down their arms and fly. You will then only have to take a hop, skip, and jump from your stepping stone, and you will find yourself in the middle of the first-rate quarterdeck with all the dons at your feet. Your Ola Podrida may now be considered completely dished and fit 
to be set before his majesty. <laughs> Brilliant. It's absolutely Brilliant. fantastic. Brilliant. So um, I'm sure that that is not the only example of it. I can't believe that Nelson... Well, maybe maybe Nelson invented the comedy recipe. Uh, I doubt it, though. I reckon that um, there is a wonderful history Mind of... Jonathan Swift's modest proposal, which is about boiling babies. Oh, really? Yeah, as a way of curing, curing, curing hunger. Ah. Um, but, um, yeah, If so, so, someone find Marvelous. out about the boiling babies yes. thing and get yes. in touch with it, yes. that would be wonderful. So, um, yeah, that's, that's my take on it. That's what I would do, I think. Good. I would look into... Good, good, good. I would look into the history of comedy recipes. Excellent. Well, I mean, I was struck by... To go back to what you were talking about earlier on with your, your, your own family recipes... I think what's interesting and what I have worked on for for a couple of years is uh, historical family recipes uh, for the, I suppose, um, late 15th through to the 18th century. Um, And these are extraordinary, um, extraordinary volumes um, that often that have a central place within the household, are often owned by women, are often passed from one woman to the next generation. Um, and you can trace sort of often sort of whole sort of, you know, a whole sort of couple of centuries of female owners, uh, different types of handwriting throughout. So you can see who has been writing in it. Yep. It's been passed on from one to another. You can see the kinds of things they're interested in, the kinds of roles that they have within the family. Yep. So they are, women are often very much involved in the medical life of the family you know and we're talking pre uh, sort of professionalization of, of of medicine here or it's you know there's some there's some overlap women would have always been uh, practitioners within the household um you know looking after the interests of of the family these books are also compendious in that they they often at the, at the beginning will include notes of births and deaths so they're they're these sort of big sort of practical volumes um you they also often talk about where recipes have come from so you can have a look at the transmission of knowledge so how do you know which is very interesting about thinking about how do women who are not trained medically in a formal way acquire medical knowledge yeah and how does that how do those how does that knowledge get passed around and some of it is book taught some of it is is sort of um it's oral tradition some of it is passed around in in manuscript and one of the most wonderful collections that I've worked on is a, is a collection just down the road at the record office here in the Fortescue Manuscripts um, to do with um, a mother and daughter, Margaret Boxcowan, who's a Cornish gentlewoman. Uh, died Related in, to Admiral died, died in, Yes, yes. Wife, husband? Died, uh, husband sorry, wife, mother? Early, early, daughter? It's, she died in 1688. Ah, so, okay. So that that it would be as it, she's married to a, an MP, but also her daughter Bridget Fortescue of Devon. Um, we know about them because their correspondence between them survives. We know that Bridget suffered from scrofula. We've talked about scrofula. We have when we looked at hands, hands yeah. um, and the royal the royal touch. So she had this sort of um, this the king's evil. So these sort of sores on her neck and head, and while she was young, her mother uh, collected. Uh, these recipes for her to cure the king's evil. I think she was the great grandmother of the famous Admiral Edward Buscoen. Good, I'm sure she was. Excellent, thank you. And one of these recipes, which is on a loose scrap of paper, is called the glister. Take mallows, pelletry of the wall, violet and mercury leaves of each one handful of posset drink, 
and one quart boil these, strain it, take somewhat less than a pint, add to it two ounces of brown sugar and two ounces of syrup of violets and so it, make it warm. Glister as it is here set down the things that I appoint myself, but only the manner and time and measures for mine own good, though the doctors here think it best for me to believe them against my own sense. So in a sense, she's not only just recording this, she's also debating with the doctor's advice. But this manuscript survives within a massive collection of other things. They've got here several um, complete recipe books, so and and tiny little um, manuscript volumes as well, and then they've got a whole bunch of what are, what I would describe as manuscript separates. Manuscript separates are basically individual recipes, which is quite rare to have, and they are in all kinds of sort of scrappy bits of handwriting. So you get this sense that they've accumulated them from all over. One of the most touching things about this. And this is how you sort of breathe a kind of an emotional life, emotional history, into what can be very sort of dry material. You know, rather like you reading out your mother's description, the correspondence that frames the, the recipe, you get this sort of sense of, of the sort of personalities in them. And one of the most touching things is that the mother, Margaret, died of breast cancer. Mm. There are collections of recipes to treat breast cancer. That are sort of that are organised into a tiny little pile, um, and I think what happened was the mother's recipe collection then passed on to her daughter, and they survive within the Fortescue papers, and the daughter has gone through and organised these, put them into some kind of order. Um, so you get the sense that you know maybe she was looking after her, you know, mother during a you know particularly savage yeah. illness mm. um but it but it yeah but it, it absolutely fascinating i mean it enables one of the cures were for breast cancer ointments probably something like that i can't yeah. I, I was looking for them on my laptop last night looking for photographs and i have um i filed them somewhere i, I can't find them oh, <laughs> i really don't know very much about medical history at all but i presume that there's a kind of balance between ointments and Topical rubbing on yep. creams and things yep. and yep. ingesting, yep. isn't there? Yeah, and I wonder what, to what extent. Also, that... you know, using things that are pretty. I mean, with this, with the king's evil, you know, using mercury, it's pretty. You know, you're dealing with pretty serious stuff there. Yeah, yeah, a lovely example. I like that. Yes, uh, I'm going to read you a recipe now, and I want you to guess what it's for. Okay, you. Oh, if you do well... that, I've got one for you. <laughs> <laughs> And you guys can, if you're listening to this podcast, I want you to play the game. Um, you might be walking around in the middle of a town. You might be walking out in a field. But I want you to shout out <laughs> what you think the recipe's for. Okay. Take equal amounts of sulphur, rock salt, ashes, thunderstone, and pyrite. And pound fine in a black mortar at midday sun. Also in equal amounts of each ingredient, mix together black mulberry resin and zacinthian asphalt. The latter in a liquid form and free-flowing, resulting in a product that is sooty-coloured. Then add to the asphalt the tiniest amount of quicklime. But because the sun is at its zenith, one must pound it carefully and protect the face, or it will ignite suddenly. When it catches fire, one should seal it in some sort of copper receptacle. In this way, you will have it available in a box without exposing it to the sun. I've got it. It's saltpetre. Uh, is it gunpowder? No, it's not. No. Oh. Oh. 
I was, I was feeling so smug having got that. It's not no. So saltpeter is a is an ingredient of gunpowder, right? And no, it's not. Any other idea? It's it's certainly flammable and dangerous. Fireworks? No. I can't think. Okay, it's something called Greek fire. Greek fire. Oh, oh, yes. So okay. looking back yeah, yeah, to, yeah. to the, the time, yeah, kaboom. Like napalm. Sort Basically, of. yes. Yeah. So, so Greek fire is... Uh, I mean, it, it, it has a, a long and troubled history, mm. uh, but basically it becomes super famous with, with in Byzantium yeah. um, around about 1000 AD. Right. Um, so the eastern part of the Roman Empire that was. Yeah. And they developed this thing called Greek fire, uh, which burns underwater, on water. And in fact, the flames uh, are made usually wider and taller by water. So right. it's the opposite. So it's a, it's, a, it's a brilliant and very, very dangerous weapon to use for naval warfare in particular. Goodness me. But here's the interesting thing about it. That's one description of how to make Greek fire. Uh, and it, it, What's the date of it? A, uh, the third century. Right. Oh, That's gosh. the third century. Okay. Now, um, Greek fire is a great example because there are all sorts of other recipes for Greek fire and they're all completely different and we still have no idea how they made it. Which I like. We, so should, we should try it. <laughs> try and make Greek fire in the bath. <laughs> We've okay. got a problem. So anyway, there are there are some examples in history which I'm fascinated by because we don't know. No recipe actually survives, or the recipes that do survive are inaccurate. This was written, um, and it was a, it was a guess. This was a Roman yeah. author basically guessing or having a go at it. Um, and when we've recreated all of the various recipes for Greek fire, none of them worked. And it, well, it partially explains why Western, English, French, German armies and navies couldn't recreate it. And it's still one of those enduring historical mysteries. So please get in touch if you know of other examples in which the recipe doesn't actually exist anymore. Is it, isn't, isn't that Roman fish... Sauce. There's a Roman fish, dis- very famously disgusting Roman fish sauce that the Romans ate on everything called garum. Was right, it? Right, right. Um, again, I'm mm. talking off the top of my head. Um, but I, I suspect that's one. I think it's a completely yes. kind of revolting thing yeah. made out of anchovy guts and yes. brains and mm. stuff. But the Romans had it on everything. But I don't think the recipe survived. The recipe survived. But mm. it was like it was it was everywhere. It was like ketchup. But I, I don't think... Stinky it, ketchup. Great stinky Roman ketchup. Yeah, stinky Roman ketchup. Your, 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 your talk of um, experimenting in, <laughs> in the bathtub um, reminds me of um, my two daughters who at the moment are, love experimenting, uh, making bath bombs. Uh, and I was babysitting... Uh, making their own ones. Making their own ones. I was, exper- I was babysitting uh, my six-year-old and, uh, and a, an older friend yesterday uh, for the day because... Um, for some reason, their school doesn't go back um, about a week longer than, um, than than other schools. And my six-year-old came to me, came downstairs while I was working, and said, Daddy, could you just come upstairs a minute? Um, there's a... And she said, um, um, my friend um, is putting paint in the sink. <laughs> and her idea of how to add colour to a bath bomb... So they'd got... Um, they, they basically got my shaving cream and shaving gel and... Um, they'd put some soap in there and they'd put some shampoo and they'd put some conditioner in it and then had gone to my daughter's paint box and taken a tub of pink paint and just squirted wow. it. The place was just covered in pink. It worked. Um, it actually worked. They froze it. What I like about that example is that you've got a six-year-old girl's 
idea of what ingredients are available yep. in the world in the to house. make something yes. happen. Yes. Um, and that says a great deal about education. Yes. Uh, a, that's yes. fascinating. I'm really into yep. that now. So if yep. you, oh, this is, I'm really, I want to do all sorts of things. So you basically suggest to kids, can you make this and, and see what they come up with yes. to see what they think w- w- uh, is an available my, my eldest creative used, ingredient. Used, my eldest loves baking and she's eight now. But when she was about six, she refused to use a recipe. Mm. And so she would try and make cakes and would just use, would use her yeah. her kind of just knowledge of how flour and eggs and milk and sugar all went together. Were they edible? Because my daughter made what she called well, spicy cakes and they were, they were the whole purpose was she'd they put would anything de- she wanted They in. were delicious. Some of them were, re- <laughs> were actually really, really good. Them. She used to make bread. Oh, and then and sort of and, with and paint ma- in it. ended up not with paint in it, but ended up making a kind of a, a, almost with no recipe, almost a focaccia style bread. It was quite heavy yeah. because she hadn't put any yeast in and it hadn't proved, but it was but it and it had sort of tomato in it and and olive and you know stuff. Anyway, enough of that. I have a recipe for you. See if you can tell what right. this is. Take half a pint of water, a pint wanting a quarter of wine, and as much vinegar which being mixed together make a quart and a quarter of a pint more. Then take six ounces of galls beaten into small powder and sifted through a sieve. Put this powder into a pot by itself and pour half the water, wine and vinegar into it. Likewise, take four ounces of vitriol and beat it into a pounder and put it also in a pot by itself. Wherein to put a quarter of the wine, water and the vinegar that remaineth and in and to the other quarter put four ounces of gum Arabic beaten to powder. That done, cover the three pots close and let them stand three or four days together, stirring them every day three or four times. On the first day set the pot with galls on the fire and when it begins to seeth, stir it about till it be thoroughly warm, then strain it through a cloth into another pot and mix it with the other two pots, stirring them well together. And being covered, then let it stand three days till thou meanest to use it on the fourth day when it is settled. Pour it out and it will be good. Blank. <laughs> if there remain any dregs behind, pour some rainwater that hath stand long in a tub or vessel into it. For the older water is the better it is. And keep that until you make more. Blank. So it is better than clean water. How, could, how does anyone come up with that? It's an unbelievably complicated recipe. It is. Imagine how many times someone would have tried to have made that and then just got one of those tiny steps wrong. And then it's oh, rubbish. I know. <laughs> um, I think that is... Oh, my God. Um, if it helps, it's from is, do you um, eat it? a book of secrets. Do you eat it or not? No. No. Do you chew it? There's nothing. You don't no. put it in your mouth at all? No. No. Okay. Book of secrets. Do you give up? No. I never give up. I'm going to get this. Is it something you put on your face? No. Hmm. Think about the kinds of things that I've researched and I'm interested in, and <laughs> various. Uh, but um, so my first book, first big book, was ooh, on. Oh, oh, oh! Is it? Is it ink? Yes, yes. yes. Well done, very you. good. High five. Yes, mm. very good. And there are loads of. I mean, one of the most common recipes that you come across in the early modern period is not the sort of medical stuff. It is ink. That's amazing. Every absolutely everywhere. Absolutely I everywhere. No I love that. Um, is that a wrap? 
Yes, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening. Let's leave it there with an inky full stop. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes. Please do. It really, really helps. Subscribe to the podcast and tell all of your friends. We're on Twitter. You can follow me at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow Histories of the Unexpected on Unexpected Pod. We are proud. We are truly Mm. proud to be part of the excellent History Hit Network, home of Dan Snow's History Hit and other fantastic shows. And you can find out more about what we've got planned in the forthcoming months, show notes, video clips, photos of everything we discuss and much, much more at historyhit.com forward slash unexpected. Bye. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.